Now is the time. Go ahead, open it up to Mark chapter 14, verse 53. That's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, that is okay. There are some on the seats in front of you, the blue and white ones. I believe it's page 480 where we're going to be if you need to find that. And again, the words aren't going to be on the screen, so you're going to need a a hard copy to follow along with, all right? We are uh, continuing this series, excuse me, that we've been in for some time now, walking through the gospel of Mark little by little. Uh, We're picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago with verse 53 of chapter 14. But today, as you can tell, we're also starting something new. It's a series within a series, kind of like a dream within a dream, Inception reference. Anybody? Thank you. Okay. So a series within a series that we're calling Why He Came, where we're wrapping up the book of Mark in the four Sundays of Advent, which are these next four Sundays. And so that might seem a little strange to some of you because Advent is this season of longing and anticipation and and joy looking towards the coming of Christ. Advent means coming. And so we as a church look back to the first coming of Jesus at Christmas that we celebrate and his birth, the incarnation. And it's also a season where we look forward with longing and expectation to the return of Jesus when he will come again. But again, this might feel a bit odd. Why are we celebrating, or excuse me, looking at the end of the Gospel of Mark, which, spoiler alert, includes a cross and suffering and death and is really kind of heavy. Why are we looking at that at the same time when we're supposed to be celebrating the birth of Jesus and his life and the joy of Christmas? I mean, it'd be like if you went to a Christmas concert and the band came out, and started playing like death metal, like heavy metal music, like I was like screaming, you'd be like, you'd be like, wait a second, this feels off. Like we're not matching the emotion that's here. But if we look at the Gospels, and we look at all the different chapters of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about one-third of the chapters throughout the Gospels focus on the last week of Jesus' life, the last week of his life leading to his death, about one out of every three chapters, and the same is true for the Gospel of Mark, about the last third of the book is focused on that last week of Jesus' life leading to his death. And so, with so much attention in the Scriptures given to the death of Jesus, we need to take notice And we need to understand the cross of Jesus Christ and his death if we really want to understand why his birth and the incarnation was such a big deal in the first place. In order to understand why he came, we have to look to the cross and how the story ends, as it were, in order to understand how, or the meaning, excuse me, of the beginning of his life. And so it's my hope that in this season, as we're looking at Christmas and the incarnation, Jesus' birth and his life, uh, we would have a deeper appreciation and celebration and gratitude of that reality because we understand the meaning of his death and the cross. So we're going to jump in, shall we? Mark 14, verse 53 says this. They took Jesus to the high priest 
and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Okay, so we're picking up where we left off two weeks ago. Jesus has been arrested. His disciples have ran away. One of them was naked, streaking off into the night, if you remember that part. And we're introduced here to two storylines that we're going to follow throughout the rest of chapter 14. And the first, of course, is Jesus, as he's on trial, in a sense, before the ruling religious leaders of the day. That's the first storyline we're going to follow. But we're also going to see the second storyline with Peter. Right? Verse 54 mentions Peter, that he's following at a distance. The disciples all ran away when Jesus was arrested. But now we're given maybe a glimmer of hope that, that Peter's going to keep his word and stand by Jesus and not abandon him. And so he's following at a distance. He's even taken this kind of risky, bold move to enter uh, the home in the, in the complex of the high priest, right? It says he's in the courtyard down below the house, somewhere he's not supposed to be. And so we're like, all right, Peter, maybe there's hope for you after all. So we read on to see first the storyline with Jesus, verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Okay, so Jesus is brought before the high priest in his home with the Sanhedrin gathered. This was the, the highest ruling council of the day. I mean, the elite religious leaders, there would be about 71 members in total. Uh, some were chief priests or elders or scribes. I mean, this is kind of the, the big cheese of religious leadership in the day, okay? They're the authority. And right away, we see that they're not doing things by the book, okay? The whole trial is set up, and we already see that it's a sham. I mean, first of all, the council would not normally meet in the high priest's home, rather strange. Normally they'd meet in the temple courts or somewhere else. Normally they'd meet during the daytime in public, but now they're meeting at night, in the middle of the night, kind of secretively. So it's all kind of shady already. And then you see they're trying to get evidence to bring against Jesus, but none of it is working out, right? It tells us multiple times that they can't uh, get their story straight. And we know that this is because Jesus has done no wrong. Jesus was without sin. He did not deserve death, but they keep trying to kill him. So verse 55, they couldn't find any evidence against him. Verse 56, many testified falsely against him, but their testimony didn't agree. They're even distorting his claims about the Jewish temple and its destruction, saying, I heard him say he's going to rebuild it and so on. And they're twisting what he said. But then it said, verse 59, even then their testimony did not agree. So this whole thing's a mess. It's like a, the DMV of Sanhedrin trials. You know, it's, 
just incompetent and slow and messy and dirty and no one wants to be there. It's not going well at all. And at this point, any, any reasonable understanding of Jewish law would just throw this case right out, right? False witnesses, no credible claims. What are we even doing here? Let's just go home. The guy is innocent. But they proceed. See, the Sanhedrin had a good amount of power and autonomy to rule, but they could not execute criminals. They did not have the authority to put people to death. For that, they had to go to Rome. See, the Romans were in power over the Jewish people, and so they had to take their claims to the Romans, who would then give them the authority to execute someone that they wanted executed. And so they're trying to get their story straight. We want to go to the Romans and make a credible case to get rid of Jesus because he's a threat. We don't like what he's saying. We don't like what he's doing. So how can we twist this situation and get rid of him? But it's not working. And so the high priest says, enough. Let's just talk to him directly and see what he has to say for himself. Okay, verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, up to this point, I imagine the room was quite noisy. Men yelling false claims. Their stories aren't corroborating with one another. It's it's chaotic. But now, I imagine it gets quiet. Because he's asked a very pointed question. Jesus, are you the Messiah? What do you have to say for yourself? How will you respond to these claims? Verse 62, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked, you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. And so we see his response brings this strong reaction from the Sanhedrin. The high priest tears his clothes a sign of grief and lament over what he has just heard. He was required to do so when he heard blasphemy. They all condemn him to death. He says, we've heard enough. They spit on him. They mock him. They blindfold him and strike him, saying, if you're so smart, tell us who hit you. They're mocking him. They're beating him. All because of his response in verse 62. And so let's look, what? Is he saying that evokes such a reaction? He says, I am. I am the Messiah. And he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the response that gets this reaction. So we have to think, what is he saying? It'd be easy to maybe skip right over this. That sounds like nice language about clouds and heaven, and that's really great. But what is he actually saying? His words here are very intentional, very purposeful. 
See, he's quoting the Old Testament. Okay, he's pointing back to these ancient prophecies about this one who would come and who would lead and save the people of God. And he's saying that one to come has now arrived. I think it's me. I'm here, the long-awaited Messiah, Savior. And you see, he quotes Psalm 110, which talks about one sitting at the right hand of God the Father. This was a position of authority and glory and power, ruling the world with God the Father. He's saying, that's me. And then in the same breath, you notice he points to Daniel chapter 7, which I want to read for us a couple verses to give us the context. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says this, In my vision at night, Daniel's writing, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Again, Jesus has just said, he's the son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. There's that language. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority glory, sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so you see in these references that this Messiah, who Jesus is claiming to be, is not merely some human ruler, because he shares the authority of God sitting at his right hand. He speaks of coming on the clouds. That's kind of, in the Old Testament, like God's chosen means of transportation. That's a, a divine uh, recognition and symbol there. It's a sign of power. This figure, he says, would have authority, glory. All nations would worship him. He would rule and reign over an everlasting, unending kingdom. And so here, Jesus, in Mark chapter 14, before all these religious leaders is saying, I am that cosmic, divine ruler that the Old Testament pointed forward to, and one day, I will not be on trial in front of you, but you all will be on trial before me. The one true king. And so for them, like this is blasphemy. He, he's putting himself on par with God. Who does he think he is? How dare you say such a thing? And so they say he's worthy of death. Now we today then are left to consider his claims and who he is claiming to be. I'd argue there's no more important question today than who is Jesus? Who is he? See, I think what we've done today is often we come up with these shrunken versions of Jesus, these more manageable versions of Jesus. Like one of them I like to call fortune cookie Jesus. You know, like come to Jesus and he gives us this little fortune cookie and has, he just says, you're awesome and you're going to have a big breakthrough in your business next week and you're going to have health and all things are going to go well for you. And we're like, wow, thanks Jesus. You know, that's fortune cookie Jesus, but there's no, there's no relationship really there. Uh, he doesn't require anything of us. Just come get the fortune cookie. Wow, it's so great. And we go our way. 
Or sometimes we have what I'd call uh, cuddly Jesus, as well, or, or boyfriend Jesus, right? We want to cuddle up on the couch with Jesus, and he wants to just encourage us and make us feel good and help us achieve our dreams. And again, you're awesome, but there's no, there's no awe before this Jesus. There's no sense of, of worship. It's just kind of like a spiritual pat on the back from Jesus. Sometimes we have what I would call a profound wisdom Jesus. That's a common one, right? He's a great teacher. We look at the things he said and no one ever spoke like this man. Profound wisdom about forgiveness and even non-Christians say he's said some good things about love and forgiveness and, and the rest and but let's not get carried away with him being God or him being my authority or me having to obey him or worship him. I mean, he's just, again, a good teacher. And I think we, we shrink Jesus down. We could, we could keep going. You could probably all add some more to that list, this shrunken view of Jesus, because that Jesus or those types of Jesus are more manageable, right? We can handle a Jesus like that. That Jesus doesn't expect much of us, doesn't require much of us doesn't infringe upon our life too much. Just, you know, shrink them down, put it in our pocket, and just kind of go on with life. The problem with those views of Jesus is that they, they take maybe part of the picture and ignore the rest and ignore the full picture of who Jesus is. I mean, viewing Jesus that way would be like thinking about Michael Jordan and saying, you know what, he was a really great shoe salesman. I think that's what Michael Jordan was about. To which you, of course, would say, well, yeah, he did sell a lot of shoes and does sell a lot of shoes, I guess, but that's not really the heart of what he's about, right? That's not really what he's known for. He's this iconic, legendary basketball player, arguably the greatest to ever do it. Or it would be like saying, you know, Beyonce, I know Beyonce, see, we're going there, we're going there, you didn't think, I'm with it, Beyonce, okay, it'd be like saying, Beyonce, she was a really good actress, you know, she's just an actress, to which you would say, well, she was in some movies, yeah, I guess, she did some acting, uh, but is that really the heart of who Beyonce is and why we know Beyonce? I mean, what makes Beyonce Beyonce? It's her singing, her voice, her, her music. She's this iconic, legendary musician and singer. And so we'd say, you're getting part of it, I guess, but the full picture is really kind of missed. And so with Jesus, we get these pictures of his encouragement and that he does want to bless us and bring good into our life. And he does want to encourage us and affirm us and draw near to us. He is uh, kind and, and gentle and humble and welcomes us into his presence, no doubt. And he does have some incredible, profound things to say about life and love and how to know the Lord. But that's not all he is. Right, and so we see here in, in Mark chapter 14, big Jesus, right? No shrunken down version of Jesus. We see this big, high, lofty view of who Jesus is, what he's claiming about himself, right? He will be seated at the right hand of God Almighty. 
coming in power and glory to rule and to reign and to be worshipped and adored by all people, the, the Savior of the world, the divine King of the universe, the one to whom we owe our worship and our obedience and the commitment of our whole lives. Do you see how big of a claim this is? This is no shrunken down Jesus. So we have to come to terms with who he's claiming to be. And I understand that, that for some of us, that's going to be a hard thing to wrap our, our minds or our hearts around. And some of us, maybe that goes against what we've been taught or some of the ways that we've understood uh, spirituality in the world or in our lives or in our families growing up. And so I know that I'm not, prob- not going to convince you likely in this short uh, sermon that all these things are true, my, my humble goal is simply to present before you what Jesus is claiming so that we all can clearly see, okay, this is who Jesus says he is. You might not believe that. You might not agree or think that he's right or think that what the Bible says is true, but can we just at least agree that that is what Jesus is claiming, this big divine authority over everything. And then it's up to you how you will respond. If you'll respond in worship and in adoration and following this Jesus, or if you'll say, no. Or, or like the Sanhedrin, let's, let's just get rid of him. He's not who he says he is. He shouldn't be saying the things he's saying. For the Sanhedrin, you see, it was just simply too much. And it led to his death. While this is all happening, the trial upstairs, let's say, there's another trial going on in the courtyard with Peter, verse 66. It says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And so what began as something somewhat hopeful, there's a glimmer of hope that Peter would stay true to Jesus and follow him. He snuck into the home of the high priest, but it just ends in devastation. This, this servant girl, this unnamed servant girl, says, hey, you're, you're with Jesus, right? Ah, I don't know what you're talking about. Surely you're with him. We can tell by your accent. You're from Galilee. No, 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 no. And then eventually the third time, just cursing. He might be cursing himself or calling down a curse on Jesus. We, we don't really know for sure, but he's agitated. Excuse me. He's worked up. And in the strongest words possible, he doesn't want to be associated with Jesus in any way. This is Peter. Right? The rock, the rock upon which Jesus would build his church, 
now disintegrates into sand before our very eyes in a moment of pressure. Verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. He realizes what's happened. He's denied his Lord, his master, just as Jesus said he would. And he weeps and his heart is broken over what he's done. Similar to what we saw a couple weeks ago, you remember in the garden, Jesus says, hey, pray with me. He has a somewhat willing spirit, but he falls asleep. And then the crowds come to arrest Jesus, and he runs away. And now here, he's pressured to admit his identity as a follower of Jesus, and he, he falls away. When the pressure gets turned up, he denies him. And so notice, these stories are told, these events are put back to back for a reason. Two trials are going on, one with Jesus in the Sanhedrin, one with, with Peter in the courtyard, and these trials could not be more different. They're contrasted in every way. Jesus is being interrogated by the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling religious council of his day, while Peter is being interrogated by this unnamed servant girl. The accusers bring lies and false testimonies against Jesus, while the girl speaks the truth about Peter. Jesus, though, speaks the truth about who he is, even though it leads to his death while Peter speaks lies about who he is in order to preserve his life. They couldn't be more different. And they're show, it's showing us this contrast to highlight the example of Jesus, that he is faithful, he is true, he stays the course. And the way of Jesus is self-denial, not self-preservation. And so this is challenging for us because it's maybe tempting to get on our high horse and look down at Peter, as we maybe do often. Silly Peter, impulsive Peter, fearful Peter. And yet we realize, if we're honest, that we see ourselves in the Apostle Peter. We see some of our own story and our tendency in fear to shrink back, to deny Jesus, to not speak up, to not be associated with him. I mean, when the heat is turned up, often we back down. And you know, here in the West, we don't face persecution in the way that so many Christians have throughout the centuries or the way that many do today in different parts of the world, but it's still pretty unpopular to be a Christian nowadays. Right? It's not really a, a positive thing in society the way that it used to be. So people kind of look at you a little funny if you're a Christian sometimes, or if you really take the Bible seriously, you know, you'll be seen as maybe ignorant or foolish or maybe even dangerous in some ways just for, for believing the things that Jesus says. And so we're given this picture of Peter, and when the pressure is turned up, 
to, to sober us up and to consider how will we respond when we find ourselves in situations where it's easier or less costly to just deny Jesus, maybe ignore Jesus, tone down the whole Jesus thing so that things go a little more smoothly for us? Or will we claim our identity in Christ no matter the cost? And sometimes, again, this doesn't happen through our words. You know, sometimes we're not going to find ourselves in a place where we'd say, I don't know Jesus or I've never had any interactions with Jesus. We might not do that. But sometimes we deny Jesus by our our actions, our works, the things we do or we don't do. We might not verbalize those things, but our lives speak. And they communicate to the world around us what we value, what we believe, what we cherish. And so it's possible to say, I love Jesus, but then by the way that we live, our hearts are still full of greed and selfishness and materialism. And it's really just all about us, even though we proclaim a a faith in Jesus Christ. And so sometimes it's our works, not our words, that deny Jesus. You know, and so all of this, this encouraging word brought to you this Christmas season by Mark chapter 14, but it does, again, uh, circle back to, again, Advent, Christmas. What's, what's this all about? You know, I was watching a movie on Netflix the other week as we were decorating our tree. It was The Christmas Chronicles. Anyone seen it on Netflix? Okay, yeah, it was cute, right? It was good. I, I didn't finish it, to be honest, but I watched like a chunk of it, and it was like, okay, I could probably get into this. Um, you know, storyline, if you haven't seen it, uh, this little girl and her brother, like, essentially have to help Santa save Christmas. Like, his, yeah, there we go. Thank you. All right, good. So, like, his sleigh breaks down, or the reindeers run off. I I wasn't paying super close attention, just to be honest. But, you know, so something happens, and they're like, oh, no. Like, we got to get Christmas back on schedule. People need their presents. We got to go around the world. We got to make this happen. And and Santa, I think it was played by Kurt Russell, was trying to explain to the kids how dire a situation this was. Like, we really got to fix this. If we miss Christmas, you don't understand the fallout. It's going to be bad. There's going to be darkness and depression and war and all this type of stuff. And so he says to them this line. I did pay attention to this part, okay? This one line. He says, people need Christmas. Okay? He says, they need Christmas to remember how good they can be. Anybody remember that line? They need Christmas to remember how good they can be. To which I said, no, (laughs) that's not what Christmas is about because it's actually the opposite. If we look to the scriptures and take this book seriously, Christmas is not about how good we can be. It's actually about how needy we are, right? That Jesus came to rescue us to save us from ourselves and from sin and death and darkness. He is the light breaking into the world. And so Christmas this season is not about us being good and awesome. It's about us being needy and dependent and sinful and in need of a Savior to come. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. That's why we celebrate. And so we're reminded of the good news of the gospel, who this Jesus is. Big Jesus, right? Savior of the world, King of the universe, very God of very God. 
in the flesh, dying for our sins so that we could be forgiven, cleansed, adopted into the family of God. We could be reconciled and, and know God, be in a relationship with the God who loves us. What an amazing truth. So how tragic, how absolutely tragic when we view Christmas as about ourselves being great. It's about our great God who we serve. And so, friends, we have an opportunity now to remember Jesus, to celebrate him by coming to the table. We're going to practice communion as a church where we take the bread and we take the cup, these elements that remind us of what Jesus has done for us. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we come to the table and take the elements, we remember Jesus' life and his death on the cross in our place to bring us forgiveness of sins. And we celebrate his resurrection and the new life that we now enjoy in him. And so we practice an open table here at FBC, which simply means if you're here, even if you're visiting, you're not a member here, if you have put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us, to come forward. The music is going to play. We have the two stations up front. And I believe uh, it's all gluten-free now. So if any allergies, you're covered. Yeah, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, with that, I'm going to pray as we come to remember and celebrate our Lord. Jesus, we are uh, in awe of you. We are amazed by your goodness and your glory and your love. Thank you for saving us, for loving us so much that you would come die in our place to bring us back into your family, that we might know you and love you and enjoy you and have life forever with you. And so we remember you now, Jesus, as we come to the table and take these elements. Would you prepare our hearts? Would you bless this time? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.